Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Fine art and cocktails can make a great pairing, and the distillery of modern art brings them together. The part gallery, part distillery, and part cocktail lounge opened in Shambly during the summer, And later this hour, we'll listen back to my conversation with founder Seth Watson about bringing together spirits, hospitality, and art. Plus, the culture of freestyle rap with Clark Atlanta hip-hop history professor Joe Stew. First... Last year, Zoo Atlanta lit up the winter season in spectacular fashion with the first-ever Illuminates Chinese Lantern Festival, the beautiful, larger-than-life light sculptures were created by artists from the Han Art Culture Production Company. The festival is open to the public again and runs through January 15th. Joining me now via Zoom is Jennifer Smith, Zoo Atlanta's VP of Strategic Partnerships and Initiatives. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to join you today. Please tell us why Zoo Atlanta formed an alliance with the Hanart Company. We looked at a lot of different opportunities to activate the zoo in a way that had never been activated before. And I think bringing a Chinese Lantern Festival to Zoo Atlanta is a great opportunity that aligns with our mission of showcasing, protecting biodiversity, How are these magnificent light sculptures constructed? You know, it's it's wonderful that we have actually had the opportunity to see some of them constructed on site. These are handmade. So as an example, we added some ornaments to 
our kids zone area where we have some additional activations and programming going on for families. And we asked Hanart, our partners, to create some ornaments for us. And so we had the opportunity to actually see these being created right here at Zoo Atlanta. The artisans that were part of the Hanart team started by shaping some of the metal right on site, uh, kind of welding the structure together. And then the ornaments were covered with silk. Uh, there are designs that are cut out of the ornaments and kind of some decorative fabric is put on. So it was really interesting to see the process from start to finish. For the ornaments that we have on site, it took about, I would say, a week or so to construct some of the ornaments. And they're fairly simple structures when you compare, you know, a round ornament to something as spectacular as uh, a flower that opens and closes or a cheetah up in a tree or a python that's wound around trees and mushrooms and things like that. So some of the structures that they put together are extraordinarily intricate, extraordinarily big. Some of the things are just ultimately larger than life, but it was really interesting to see that process actually being done even here on grounds at Zoo Atlanta. A spectacular towering dragon is among the lanterns displayed. Jennifer, how was the dragon erected in the space it occupies? I'm curious about how tall it is also. Well, the dra we actually have two dragons. So the dragons are one of the first things that you will see when you come onto uh, the Zoo Atlanta right at, at our main entry point. So it's pretty impressive. The two dragons that we have are kind of facing each other. And I would say they probably range, I would say the tallest point is about 12 feet tall was my guess. And their heads move. So they actually kind of rotate and look at each other and their heads move. So not only do you get the beautiful vista, you see all of the airbrushing and the painting that was done again as part of this art process. But then you also, they move. And so a lot of the lanterns that we have throughout Zoo Atlanta actually move as well. Other eye-catching characters among these lanterns, you mentioned a few. I noticed a very charming ape, an unusual praying mantis, and an elegant cheetah. What are your favorites? I have two that I would consider my favorites. The first is a phoenix. And I have actually been reading a little bit about the phoenix and its meaning in Chinese culture. And the phoenix ultimately represents harmony in nature. It is uh, a coming together of yin and yang and male and female. And it ultimately represents all of that in one vista, one creature, and this is the phoenix. And so the, the display that we have here at Zoo Atlanta that depicts the phoenix is actually quite uh, impressive. It's, it's a large display and it's got, again, a lot of kind of floral that goes along with it, a couple of other birds that go along with it. And it's actually, the phoenix is one showcase piece that's part of a much larger display. So it's really impressive visually. The colors on it are absolutely stunning. So I think it's just very, very beautiful. And the other that I would consider one of my favorites surrounds one of, I think, everybody's favorites residents here at Zoo Atlanta, which is our giant pandas. And so the area that is surrounding our giant panda habitat ultimately 
also speaks to the pandas in that we've got a larger than life panda that is about 14 feet tall, a little larger than the real thing. And then we also have a whole bunch of cherry trees, cherry blossom trees, and some traditional Chinese umbrellas that are in this specific area. So the panda area at Zoo Atlanta, while impressive all throughout the year, is particularly impressive right now just due to the amount of trees and pandas and lanterns that we have in that area. The lanterns represent a menagerie of beautiful animals, many of which exist in real life at the zoo. You mentioned the pandas, there are apes and cheetahs. What will the live animals do while visitors tour the lantern festival? So the trip to the zoo to see the Chinese Lantern Festival is going to be a little bit different than what people would experience during the day in that most of our animals that are visible during the day will not be visible during the Lantern Festival. That doesn't mean that all of them won't. Typically, we will have a couple that are um, on habitat and available to be seen or able to be seen. But many of the animals that we have that are out during the day will be behind the scenes in the evenings. Um, we always take animal care into great consideration. And so we want to make sure that our animals get the utmost care while we also provide a great guest experience for our guests that come in the evening. So if you want to see the animals during the day, then you want to come to Zoo Atlanta during the day. And then if you want to come to the Lantern Festival, you're just going to see animals of a different kind. You're going to see them in lantern <laughs> form. And I imagine the 14-foot-tall panda eats a whole lot of bamboo. It definitely does. We've got plenty of bamboo right around it, so right. both in lantern and in real form. <laughs> the history of Chinese lanterns is ancient, and I read it goes back about as far as the technologies of silk and paper. What can you tell us about the origins of lanterns of this art form and the important ways that it carries meaning in Chinese culture. So the Lantern Festival ultimately is one of China's more traditional celebrations. In current day, a variety of lanterns are hung in the streets. Their children will make their own lanterns and it, and it becomes something that's an activity that's done throughout the villages. And other traditions include posting riddles on lanterns. There have been a lot of iterations, ultimately, of how this has grown throughout the centuries. Uh, the art of Chinese lantern making ultimately began in the Han Dynasty, which was about 206 BC to 220 AD. So we are talking a very long time ago. And that was a significant period in the time for science and invention. And handcrafted arts ultimately kind of took off uh, as a purpose for both practical purposes to provide light and also for beauty. And so over time, you know, those ancient traditions of handcrafting things, of using some of the traditional materials, silk and paper and things like that have kind of carried through. And it's just grown into something that has become much more of an artistic expression, which is where the company that we partner with, I mean, they have a whole handful of artisans that work both here and in China to create these amazing sculptures. Last year, with the first Illuminates Chinese Lantern Festival, it 
was a great way to offer a memorable, safe family experience when COVID concerns were still front and center for many people. Does this year's Zoo Atlanta Festival differ in format or in terms of ticketing policies from last year's as people are more comfortable attending public events now? I think one of the good things that we have an advantage of ultimately here is that all of the festival grounds that you would wander are all outdoors. So it certainly creates a safe environment for folks, whether you're coming with your family, whether you're coming with your date, like I said, or just a group of friends. It's a great opportunity, I think, for all ages and kind of all iterations of folks ultimately to come see something where you can really enjoy time together and enjoy it in a safe environment outside. Jennifer Smith of Zoo Atlanta, this year's Illuminates Chinese Lantern Festival runs through January 15th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights producer Janine Etter explores the culture of freestyle ciphers with Clark Atlanta hip-hop history professor Joe Stew. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The Hip Hop Cipher is a place where freestyle rap takes center stage. Participants form a circle and must craft unscripted rhymes in a display of imagination, confidence, skills, and faith. The organization Soul Food Cipher uses the art of freestyle rap and lyricism with the goal of transforming individuals and communities. Their next freestyle rap event, 100, will take place this Sunday, November 27th. Soul Food Cipher MC host and community manager, as well as Clark Atlanta hip-hop history professor Joe Stew, spoke with City Lights producer Janine Etter 
about the art of freestyle rap, and here he explains how he was first introduced to the culture. I had the fortunate pleasure of being born in the Bronx. Like, hip-hop was just always around. And uh, I remember riding a bus to school, and somebody would start beatboxing, and you would just hear in the back of a bus someone just rapping. And one of the the kids that was rapping, I was like, wow, yo, this guy can really, you know, rap. And I I was asking him, well, did you write this down? And he said, nah, this is just straight off the top of my head. And uh, from there, it kind of just opened up my eyes. A lot of underground radio around that time. I'm probably showing my age when I talk about that. But (laughs) a lot of underground radio stations, such as the Underground Railroad, Stretching by Beto, all of those were like really pivotal to shaping my concept of what freestyling was. And again, New York was very prevalent with having that that type of exposure daily. Um, going into the parks at you know in Manhattan and in Brooklyn and all throughout New York tri-state area. And again, with a lot of the radio shows, I remember Supernatural, who's like a freestyle god within hip hop, had his own show on WBLS. And I would tune in every week, every Thursday, and just tape his show and just try to get to his level of freestyle mastery. So all of those things kind of shaped into my understanding of improvisation with rap. And what would you say the difference between freestyle and battle rap is? Well, one, it would be technique. You can battle with freestyling. It just takes a you know particular type of pension and uh, skill level, but with battling, your aim is to destroy your opponent in any way, shape, or form, you know, just lyrically destroying or breaking down or defeating that person. As in with freestyling, you can use the environment as your muse. You can, you know, use people around you. You can use the, like I said, the environment, any inanimate objects can now take life because you've spoken life into them by using your freestyle improvisational skills. But like I said, they can be interchangeable because there's times where MCs have used freestyle techniques within a battle. And speaking of, Kumo D. (laughs) A legend. (laughs) Yes, in his 2003 book, There's a God on the Mic, he says that originally freestyle was not a term used for making up lyrics as you go along, that the definition freestyling changed years later. Is Mm. that your understanding? Yes, definitely my understanding. Freestyling, originally, the concept referred to a rhyme or a verse which had no particular topic. You can kind of go here or there with it. You can talk about who you are. You can go braggadocio with it, but it didn't have like a set topic, whereas later years it formulated into someone who was actually improvising as they went off of and again i keep using this term but off the top of their dome can you paint a picture of what a freestyle cipher is especially what a freestyle cipher might look like at soul food ciphers events well one first and foremost there's a dj you know the dj is the cornerstone of hip-hop without any question and we usually have a dj there and while the DJ is spinning and, you know, playing instrumentals, we will usually see, and in fact, most of the time, you'll see MCs within a circle formation. And that circle formation 
represents a lot of things. One, it represents the continuous energy within that cipher, but two, it also represents that circle that you see whenever there's a break, a breaking competition, or there's a breaking display, or whether you have a DJ, that whole circle with the vinyl. That circle is pretty standard within hip hop, but not only hip hop, but do a lot of cultural references that have to do with rhythm, that have to do with music, that have to do with arts. We have a host, usually I'm the host, or you might have another host, Mike Sick, and, uh, who's a member of, of Soulful Cyphers, uh, a host as well. Sometimes we'll have a non-degrio. And that host is the MC who guides the segments for each one of those sections of our, of our events. One of our most famous or most notable uh, segments is wordplay. And wordplay is an opportunity for I want to say uh, to kind of give you training wheels when you're rapping and it gives you a visual reference. We have a screen that will show a, a particular word. Maybe it'll be an image and whomever is up to bat will end up freestyling whatever they see on that screen. And that's also one of the uh, most popular events that we have or, or most popular segments that we have during our events. I've heard the cipher described as being like church or like a healing space. How would you say a cipher is comparable to church or like a spiritual experience in your estimation? Yeah, um, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. We just did a seminar, myself and Ananda Griot did a seminar at Clark Atlanta University where we melded spirituality and hip hop through the form of rhyme. And to answer your question in, the, in that regard, there is a sense of freedom that you have when it comes to freestyling. Again, there's no set topic unless, you know, we have a particular segment for there, but it provides an opportunity for clear, direct human expression in the form of verbal linguistics. So you may have had a, you know, horrible day or you might have had an awesome day. Maybe somebody is, you know, in your family, you're, you're feeling, you know, sentimental about this cipher provides you the opportunity to speak that and have no judgment when it comes out. We provide a, a safe space for lyricists. So whatever said there stays there, but also we're not looking at your lyrical display or your performance in a sense where we're judging you on how dope you are. Sometimes we have people who come to the cypher and they've never rhymed before, and then they end up staying and become better MCs as, as time goes on. Sometimes we have people who just wanna try it out, you know? and they just want to get something off their chest. And either path is still significant to the energy that we bring within the cipher. So in that regard, expressing and getting a lot of that emotion out and getting the opportunity to speak it when you're not interrupted, where you have a, a clear set amount of time for you to shine, but not only shine, but to actually get all of this out it provides a space where people can leave it all on the floor, metaphorically speaking. In your events, everyone is welcome. And it sounds like you create a very safe space and a supportive environment for Absolutely. people to freestyle. What are your thoughts about why there seem to be fewer women participating in freestyle ciphers? We have made a lot of strides in, in providing that space where women can feel as welcome as any gender within the cypher. Shout out to Taye, who is our sister and member of Soul Food Cypher. She reps hard for the sisters as well. But 
I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I think we we've done a lot of work to, you know, welcome sisters within the within the the circle, within the cipher as well. And there's also some other organizations that are particularly centered for women MCs. So that's another, you know, whole gamut within itself. But we've done a lot of work to, you know, welcome women within there. But we've, we've been trying to make some headway in that so that women feel just as welcome as anybody to come within the cipher and express themselves. In addition to gender, do you see any type of generation gap when it comes to the art of freestyling? I believe that um, there's a way where we kind of cut through that here at the Cypher. Um, we have members as old as in their 50s, as young as in their teens. So we have a very large age range when it comes to MCs and members of Soul Food Cypher and also attendees to our events. We try to bridge that gap, if you will, uh, because whether you're from the boom bap era of hip hop or whether you're from the trap era or whether you're from a whole different era of, of rap, there is a commonality and that is to rap, you know, without, you know, being uh, facetious in that sense. There is a difference in the technique and styles that are used, though. I will say that for some uh, younger or different uh, generations of, of MCs, they'll tend to use melodies or harmonies more. And that's a strength that is definitely encouraged within the cypher. Any flavor that you bring in is going to add to the pot. So we don't take away or throw anything out. We include all of that within this kind of lyrical gumbo that we create within our segments and within our events. There's a lot of different mixtures that you can see and you can kind of tell where somebody's coming from, where their interests are, who they listen to, where their influences are based off their rhyme style. You know, whenever I hear somebody rap, I can generally tell their three top artists because it's kind of an amalgamation of all of those different styles put together and displayed within one individual. Would you say that freestyling is something that that you can teach or is it a talent that one has to naturally possess? I think most of it is teachable. I've seen people come into the cypher who have been a novice level rapper, you know, in that regard, especially as freestyling. And then a year later, they're destroying the cypher. They, they're killing it in wordplay. Their display of lyrical prowess has, you know, quadrupled. But it's all based on exposure and how you are using these influences. Anything within uh, hip hop can be teachable. In fact, it's probably one of the most teachable cultures and musical genres because repetition, exposure, and practice will always bring a person to a higher level, especially when they're, you know, dedicated to the craft. Clark Atlanta hip hop history professor, Joe Stew, Soul Food Cyphers freestyle rap event. 100 takes place Sunday, November 27th from 6 to 8 p.m. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, 
the founder of the Distillery of Modern Art, explains their unique combination of alcohol and art. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Fine art and cocktails make a great pairing. A new Atlanta distillery takes the idea further by bringing them together at the Distillery of Modern Art, the part gallery, part distillery, and part cocktail lounge recently opened in Shambly. Founder Seth Watson joins me now via Zoom to talk more about his new venture. Seth, welcome to City Lights. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Lois. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. And uh, tell us about your personal relationship to the visual art. So I spent nearly 20 years in hospitality, designing and producing uh, private events all over this city, all throughout the state of Georgia, and really throughout the Southeast for most of my professional career. And our goal was really to create something, I don't really like the term outside the box, but we were generally creating something that people hadn't seen before. Even if we were taking an event that was themed, we were stepping it up to make it feel like reality versus a prop. So we just spent so many years designing for other people, creating masterpiece designs that were really meant to be portable, set up for an event of 200 people, upwards of 10,000 people, and then had to break them down and then redesign something brand new for the next day. So I constantly spent time around just amazing other artists and being able to visually create something that brought people to another world, another part of the country that was representative of their ideas, sort of scribbled on a napkin, and then we had to create that reality. So I was constantly around much more talented human beings than myself, but I was able to draw inspiration from these people and lean on the community as needed. Hmm. Well, making and purveying craft-distilled beverages may be considered an art, though perhaps more of a technical science. How did you become a distiller? So I personally had to hire a very good distiller to run our facility. But as I sold my previous business, I went on an adventure of just visiting every craft distillery under the sun that would allow me in their building to learn alongside them, learn what worked, what hadn't worked, where they failed, where they could have done things better, and just really got an opportunity to be in these facilities, not just as a consumer, but helping out on staff, lugging grain around, cooking down alcohol, working through mashing and cooking and fermentation. And so as that process started, thankfully I had a few years prior to pandemic where I was able to travel a couple times a month What I realized early was that I did not know enough, no matter how much people would allow me in their facility to sort of learn. And so what I did is had to hire a consultant in the spirits industry to basically handhold me through the process so that I could learn everything from financial modeling to what products actually work in the market and why, 
how to design something that is very different than what everybody else is doing in a crowded field. And so we started to do recipe development at that time where I was visiting a friend's distillery out West. I got to go in and physically create recipes alongside my consultant and another distiller and got to put them to the test and really see, hey, are these things that people would actually like? So I was doing that for some time and was coming back to Atlanta, doing blind taste tests with friends, with random people via social media, and just really trying to pull away the marketing side a bit and really understand how to produce a product that people would seek. I'm intrigued. What ignited your passion for spirits? So around 1999, I was at the University of Florida. And just like every other college kid, hanging out at the bars, drinking lots of beer. And what I realized is that I kept spending so much time having to go just to the bathroom because of the sheer volume of fluid that I was taking in. (laughs) And I realized early, I said, you know, I need to get away from beer. It makes me feel heavy. I don't like the idea of having to have so much uh, fluid in my body. I'm going to switch to spirits just kind of on a whim. And so from that point on, you know, consuming two ounces of something versus 12 ounces, 16 ounces, 24 ounces of something, you start to be able to sort of appreciate the small amount that you're drinking. And I started looking for nuance. And what I found at the time, especially in the late 90s going into early 2000s, was that there is a world of difference in alcohol, that it would be foolish of me to just sort of stop on one thing and say, okay, I love this, I'm sticking to this. So I went on a hunt for the next 10 plus years, 15 years, looking for unique spirits. I settled into whiskey pretty early on. I was very attracted to the idea of an aged product, having to physically make something and then wait years to see if it's going to be any good. So I started to dive deeply into whiskey, which I would say is still my true, true passion with gin coming in uh, second place there. And so I just was wandering the world, all my travels from you know, being a young 20 something all the way up to being 42 now, I just kept looking for something different, something unique. And the craft world was very small at the time and went from about 200 distilleries in the country 15 years ago to about 2000 craft distilleries in the country. And so that just kept waking me up to think, okay, there's something interesting going on out there, but people are not exposed to it. So I sold my previous business in 2017 with the idea that I would stop going to create for others and create something for for myself that I can then share with the world. The state of Georgia has very few distilleries because of very old prohibition era laws that really stifle growth of any beverage alcohol. Breweries had a nice little kick for some time and they continue to grow, but producing spirits still held a lot more stiff law than, than beer did. So I saw something very difficult I saw something very unique that could take place. And I also saw the opportunity for laws to change that would benefit the industry as well. So for me, I I don't really like to do the easy stuff. I think if it's easy, everybody does it. It's one of those things that as soon as I saw the red tape, I said, aha, my favorite thing to do is to try to cut through that red tape and really dive deep. Oh, wow. Well, let's talk about the distillery of modern art. Doma. How did you come to know the artists whose works are on view? Early on, as we were trying to figure out the, the feel, the experience, you know, coming from hospitality, experience is everything. Even if that word kind of gets tired with a lot of people, it's true. The senses are everything to people. 
most breweries and distilleries around the country lack a lot of that experience. They generally just have the bare minimum so that they can produce alcohol. The customer experience is sort of afterthought until about the last five, six years where people started to really step it up. I saw an opportunity to do something on a more elevated basis that took what I was passionate about being spirits, hospitality, and art, and trying to meld those pieces together. So on the offset, really had to come up with the, the name, of course, what the brand identity was going to be, and truly understand how to differentiate ourselves from what everybody else is doing. So being so involved with artists in my entire career, I saw sort of a whole of support for local art. You know, a lot of these situations where local artists get involved or artists from all around the world, it's always a financial transaction scenario. And what I desperately wanted to do is give back to an artist community that had supported me and my business for so long with ideas and collaboration. And while people talk about collaboration in a sense that, you know, they, they're always willing to bolster other businesses, it's generally because there's something to be made from it, some sort of profit. Thinking about all the galleries around the, around the country and the world, there is so much draw for this art into these galleries, but the galleries take an awful lot of money and commission to show that artwork, which I can appreciate. But when it comes to local artists, if somebody has a thousand or $1,500 painting to have to then give up that 50% to a gallerist, to me, it seemed solely financial and not based on the appreciation of the art and or trying to help boost their career to get them to that next level. So we thought about design. And one of the things I was desperate to do was create very unique labels. And so I just reached out to the world that I was associated with and said, look, I'm looking for seven local artists to commission a piece of artwork for me that will represent the spirit in the bottle. So I'd spent a little time recipe developing and I was able to take those samples, meet a plethora of artists and said, okay, here's this spirit, try it. And then I want you to create a piece of abstract artwork that represents this spirit in the bottle. So each one got an individual taste. Then they went back and, and started creating. And so what we did, we said, we need a 40 by 40 piece of canvas, again, abstract work. And the idea from that would be to then digitize that artwork. And since it's abstract, we're able to cut it down and use it on the interior of our labels. So the backside of our label, which gives this awesome pop of color, also a really cool juxtaposition as a brown spirit bottle gets depleted, more and more of that artwork gets revealed. So not only are we going to expose local artists to the masses, but we're also creating this very cool, unique look on the interior of our bottles. If you stare at any spirits bottle, once they're empty, they're relatively boring. They're either hard to read or there's nothing that makes you want to keep it, unless it's some giant brand that you know, there's collectors out there that will definitely grab bottles just because of the name on the bottle, but we wanted that art to shine through. So the label itself's made from canvas. The structure of the label itself is represented in trim throughout our wood and our building. And then of course that artwork is prominently displayed on the inside. So people can connect with those artists when they pick up a bottle and then feel that same experience as they come into our building and see that artwork displayed. And so for that artwork, that's permanent fixture in our building. As we grow our product line, we'll engage with more local artists to design new, cool, very interesting art to go along with that spirit. The gallery that we have, this is something that changes out 
every two months, we pair two local artists that are complementary of each other in the gallery space. We charge zero commission for them to be on site. They're able to sell their, their art. It draws in a really awesome community of very different types of people. And why not be able to sell cocktails while that's happening? So that art definitely came into play as this ever-changing, ever-interesting piece where every time you come to the distillery, or for that matter, a reason to come back to the distillery is to see something very different. And then also try something very different when you're there. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Seth Watson, founder of the Distillery of Modern Art. Is there a submission process for the artists whose works are on view in the DOMA gallery? Absolutely. So on our website, we've got a submission form. I think as soon as this part of the industry heard that there was an opportunity to showcase, and for a lot of these artists, they may not have been in a gallery before, the floodgates kind of opened up and we've got submissions. Theoretically, if we were to put all these people on our calendar, we're looking at the next two years that are already theoretically booked because of the amount of quality modern art for local artists in this town. So we've got just a, a field day worth of, uh, of, of great artists that we're going to be able to represent in that gallery. Recently, you said in an interview that you associate the subjectivity of art with the subjectivity of spirits. How is tasting a craft beverage like taking in a piece of art? That's a question I get very frequently. And it's, I stand by that statement with such passion because you could take a $3,000 bottle of whiskey and pour it for somebody. And because they're aware that that is a $3,000 bottle of whiskey, they're going to drink it. Whether they like it or not, they're going to think in their mind, I'm supposed to like this because it's so expensive. So when we were working through our trials and our recipe development, I was stripping away that marketing and I was pouring $200 bottles of whiskey and $12 bottles of whiskey. And this gave people the opportunity to actually taste something without any sort of notion of what it was supposed to be. And so I lined up the most expensive, the least expensive, and never did the most expensive whiskey ever win in a blind taste test, solely because that marketing was stripped down. Somebody can go look at a piece of fine art and two people standing next to each other, somebody might see it, spend time just sort of staring into the colors. And the simplest thing can happen. Someone can say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it. The person next to them may simply think, this is the best piece of artwork that I've ever experienced. And so when I say that subjectivity, that's the same with spirits. I think palettes are different. I think the way that people view things are always different. And that's kind of the beauty of culture in general is, well, yeah, you want to appeal to the masses, but you're trying to create something, whether it be, you know, art in any form or a alcohol beverage, that you're sort of invoking something from that person. They, their senses have changed. Their, their, the way they smelled that product brought a memory recall to them where they thought back to a campfire or they thought back to the best restaurant they were ever sitting in. All of the, the types of things that we want to create are the goal is to help invoke something in the senses, whether it be by sight, taste, or smell, that brings them somewhere that elevates that experience for them. So when you look at a piece of art, like I was saying, you might think it's the best thing in the world. Next person may think otherwise. And that's the same with spirits. Hmm. 
I read that all of your cocktails were created by consultant Jeff Banks, a former bartender himself at the Luminary and Watchman's. I know they change every month or so, but Seth, what have been some of your favorites created by Jeff Banks? Oh, as far as cocktails, that's a great question. So Jeff created, I'll step back for half a second, being a manufacturer of distilled spirits, we are extremely limited to what we can sell at our bar. If we did not make the product itself, it cannot be sold or used in any of our cocktails. So even down to, if there was a mixer, if somebody wanted a liqueur that generally goes with a classic cocktail, we couldn't go and buy that liqueur from a liquor store, bring it back and use it as a mixer. If we need vermouth, if we need any of these items that are not produced in our facility, we can't, we can't use them. So we have to get very creative with the cocktails, usually taking some sort of riff on that classic cocktail and or producing very small quantities of those products so that we can then use them as a mixer. So that's a super challenge, but it's also a lot of fun. So when we get into the nitty gritty of how a cocktail is made, we look to say, well, what could we substitute that for? What could we create to make that interesting? And in doing so, Jeff was able to be very playful with the spirits we do produce and then creating the uh, simple syrups, the juices, any sort of accompaniment to the spirit, we just create them in-house, which gives greater opportunity to make something very scratch made and produce a, a, a better flavor. So a lot of questions we get at the bar specifically is, oh, well, is that a really sweet drink or is that very tart? Most people are very used to pre-made mixes of any sort that are heavy in sugar, heavy in, in artificial flavoring like lime and or lemon, and they have a bad association with that type of drink. But because we make all of those products fresh and on site, we're able to introduce these things to people where they are generally standoffish of a particular flavor until they've tried the real thing. And then you get a lot of people who come around to it. So something like our New York sour, it's a play on a, on a whiskey sour, but we make that cherry juice. It's not some heavily sugared other product. We make a espresso martini. And of course we make that coffee syrup in house. So we're brewing fresh coffee. We're grinding fresh beans to use as a, a garnish. And we use oat milk instead of any other sort of dairy. This gives this richness and, and I would just say the word awesome because it's a true word to these cocktails that are very, very different. So I would say the NYC sour, our espresso martini, and our play on the margarita where we use our vodka, which has just got an awesome bell pepper syrup that we of course make in house. It gives this, not a spiciness from the green pepper, but this very fresh vegetal taste with our vodka and ginger beer. That's just incredible. Mm, there's so much vocabulary to take in. <laughs> so I learned that there are plans for DOMA to have an herb garden, and you'd like for guests to pull their own botanicals for beverages. Tell us how you'd like guests to interact with the garden. One of the most important pieces of a distillery is that customer experience. We purposely built this building where every part of our production facility is in view. We encased it all in glass. 
from the bar, you can stare directly into our still room where you see a gorgeous 500 gallon pot still and an amazing 30 foot column still. Both these things produce alcohol. They can be used interchangeably, so to speak. One's more of a workhorse, one's more of a set it and forget it style. All of that production area is meant to just invoke something. You'll see our distiller through our gallery. You'll just see his hands in the lab creating something. So there's this live art piece to it. You get the smell of cooking grains throughout the building. And you get this visual of seeing all these pieces that make this distillery work. When it comes to the cocktail and the experience, it's okay to go out and buy all these herbs from a wholesaler and then just have them available and keep them in a walk-in cooler and just have them as needed. But the ability to one, grow those things organically on site means on a daily basis, we're not waiting for some delivery. We're going out into the garden, physically pulling the mint, physically pulling the rosemary, pulling all those items that we created right there and pulling them directly into our bar. When it comes to the botanicals, any part of the botanicals that we use for our gins, the goal will be to grow a lot of it on site. We will not be able to grow enough for production purposes, but when you come in for a tour and you're learning about a spirit, what better way than to physically put those items in somebody's hands that they can smell, taste, and understand how that turns into a spirit when it's all said and done. So that physical experience of being in the facility and understanding it, and sometimes probably not understanding it, it is easy for someone to take an item and put it in their hands, smell them and taste them and understand, and then try that spirit that they were used to make. It gives somebody all of that, that senses of experience. And so we want to draw them in for that. Continuing the DOMA experience, what kind of live events do you have in mind? So coming from hospitality and specifically events, we built a beautiful event space inside the distillery that was very intentionally built. So again, this is surrounded by glass for the most part as well, looking back into production. The idea is that that event space can transform into anything a guest would like, come in for a wedding, large corporate event, for concerts. For us personally to do events in this space, we of course love art in all of its forms. So performance art, we have already had a comedy night in there, which is you know pretty typical for a facility like this. It's a good draw to bring people in. It's awesome to be able to be in a space where cocktails are being made right behind you and a really sizable room for the space to grow with depending on the, the act at that night. We also do a series already called Cocktails and Conversations where we draw in some sort of unique person from the community We've already done something with Atlanta City Council. We've done it with my distiller. Our current exhibition featuring Dexter Vines and George Genty, very, very well-known comic book artists are currently on the walls in the distillery on display. We just had cocktails and conversation session with them. And somebody walked away with an awesome raffle of that live drawing. And so the whole idea is that you get some good cocktails, you meet these people in a very intimate space, and it's a lot of Q&A. So they'll tell their life stories, how they came to the art. They'll talk about the art that's on display. And then, of course, the Q&A will be a really awesome opportunity for people to ask questions in a setting they normally wouldn't be able to. Seth Watson, founder of the recently opened Distillery of Modern Art in Chambly. More information is on our website, 
wabe.org slash citylights. Finally, today I'd like to send a special message to a recent donor. Happy early birthday, James Rossi. We appreciate you being part of our City Lights community. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights is off for the next few days in order to bring you some Thanksgiving specials. Monday at 11 a.m., multiple Grammy Award-winning musician Herb Alpert joins us ahead of his upcoming performance with his wife, vocalist Lanny Hall, at Variety Playhouse. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier story about Illuminites at Zoo Atlanta, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Wishing you a safe and happy Thanksgiving holiday. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.